Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 3, if you're at home doing that in your living room, that would be great if you're here in person. We're going to be looking at Jonah 3 as we continue our study of the book of Jonah. And what I want us to do this morning is to, I want us to see three truths about God that need to become more tangible to us. They need to become more real to us. It can't be just something that we believe. It needs to be something that infects every aspect of our lives. Three truths about God that need to become more tangible to us. The first is this, and Madhu has just read the text. The first is this, God's word can transform anyone, even you and me. And this is a, a, a fantastical story. I mean, this is every preacher's dream, okay? Go back to the text in verse 1. It says, the, 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 the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, again, Jonah, Jonah's been off track uh, from the very beginning. He didn't want to come to Nineveh. He didn't want to come and preach to them at all. God had to deal with him. He had to send a storm. He had to send a fish. He had to get Jonah to repent of his idolatry, of his self-righteousness. But now Jonah is coming back to do what he was supposed to do. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. So God brought Jonah back to Nineveh to preach this message to Nineveh. This was God's plan. This was God's desire. So verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It may be what God what he was referring there to is it may have taken three days for Jonah to continue his preaching ministry throughout this city. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In verse five, the amazing reality and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I'll be honest, I'm a little jealous. I would love to see a response to my preaching. And there's a lot of things I'm jealous about. First of all, how long did it really take Jonah to prepare the sermon? It's like a few words, right? You know, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's not even three points. There's no illustrations. I mean, yeah, you could do this in your sleep, Right. And of course, another part of me says, what kind of a message was that? I mean, couldn't he have, you know, at least said, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, before he got to the judgment part. And the reality is in this very simple message of God's word that that, that Jonah declares to the Ninevites, it appears that the whole city turns to God in faith. They, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In verse 6, the, 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 the power of the sermon goes forward. The word, the word of God, reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. I mean, you imagine that. This is, a, this is an ancient Near Eastern king, a king of a very violent group of people. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were known as terribly violent. They would dismember their their armies that they vanquished. 
And now apparently that evil that they, they imposed on other people, that, that evil is now metastasizing and is now affecting Nineveh itself in the, in, in, among their own people. And the word reaches the king and the king puts on sackcloth, takes off his royal robes, sits down, puts on sackcloth and ashes. And then the king issues a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. This fast is for the people, but also the animals and the livestock. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This illustrates the power of God's word that can transform anyone and actually can even transform you and me. We're told later in the book that there's at least 120,000 people in Nineveh. Could have been more. That might have just been the adults. So we could have to a half a million people have responded to the message of this simple, straightforward, really message of God's wrath from God through Jonah. And God takes an entire city, a violent, wicked city, known for its malevolent actions against other people, but is also known against for its wicked and oppressive ways they treat one another. And from the lowest to the highest, from the animals to the king... There's a massive revival. Now, lest you think this, you know, how could this be? Uh, I, I want you to turn to Matthew 12. I, I want you to hear what Jesus says about this revival, this, this outpouring of God's power through his word. Matthew 12, verse 38. And Jesus is going to mention this revival that took place in Nineveh. First Matthew twelve thirty eight says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're demanding that, that Jesus give a sign to them. But what does he say in verse 39? He answers them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What I think Jesus is saying here is that in his own generation, Jesus, as he presented himself to Israel at this time, found a nation that was largely rejected him, re- re- largely uh, re- responded to Jesus with unbelief. But the men of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. And they will rise up at the, in the last day and judge the, the present generation that Jesus is dealing with. What I think we're seeing here in Nineveh, in Jonah 3, is that God's word is so powerful, even with a very simple message that Jonah presented, 
Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. God's word is so powerful, it can change anyone, even a wicked, violent people, but it can even change you and me. And I think this forces a penetrating question upon us. Are we involved enough with God's word so that that power can change us? This is the interesting thing about Nineveh. Nineveh probably did not have access to much more than what Jonah just told them. They might have not had access to, 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 to the scriptures at this particular time. They get a very simple message from Jonah and they immediately respond to God's word as God's word and the whole city is fundamentally transformed. And that same power is in this word that we have. And now we have not simply the Old Testament. We have the New Testament as well. We have this full revelation of who God is. And, 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 and the scary thing, I think, for me is, is that so many of us seem to forfeit the power that could be ours by simply ignoring God's word and not paying enough attention to it. I've never met... And maybe this can happen. Maybe it will happen. Time's running out. I've never met a believer who called me up and said, you know what? I'm having a real hard time. I am reading God's word so much. I'm having a hard time going to work. I am reading God's word so much. I think I'm neglecting my family. I'm reading God's word so much. I'm not even eating anymore. No. Most of the time when I talk to believers in Jesus Christ who have this powerful word that we see how powerful it was in transforming a wicked, uh, violent people through a very simple message. Most of the time I have people tell me I struggle to get into God's word. I don't have a regular time every day that I get into God's word. I don't know how many times people confess. That's probably one of my problems. Yes, it probably is. But the reality is we don't treat God's word for the power that it does have and the power that we see here in Jonah 3. There's another way we demonstrate that we, we may say the word has power, but we don't act like it. It's not become tangible to us. Is do we take this same powerful word and share it with those around us. To tell somebody else about something in God's word. A neighbor, a friend, a co-worker. I don't know why that is, right? Part of the reason is maybe we're not personally experiencing the power that the word has because we're not in it enough and therefore we're not in it enough and we haven't experienced enough of that power to be able to say, boy, I'd like someone else to know about this powerful word that's changing my life. So I would challenge each of us. If we really believe God transformed this wicked, violent group of people a people that was actually enemies with God's people, Israel, at this time. That they respond to the very little revelation that they have. They have very little revelation. 40 days and it's over. Are we in God's word enough to see that same power operate in our lives? And are we in it enough so that we want to take that message and, and ask God to give us opportunities to share this powerful word with our friends, neighbors, neighbors? and co-workers. That's the first truth about God that needs to become more tangible to us. But there's a second here. And the second 
truth about God that we need to get a more tangible uh, hold on to is this. No one is beyond God's mercy. Not even you and not even me. If you remember back in Jonah 1, Jonah, and, and, and we see it in Jonah 4, we'll talk about this next week. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want God to give them mercy. He doesn't believe these, this group of people, enemies of God, violent, uh, power-hungry group of people. He doesn't think they deserve God's mercy. Jonah has forgotten that he doesn't deserve God's mercy and grace. And he certainly doesn't want Nineveh to experience God's mercy and grace. So he goes the other way. Now he preaches to them. And now we see the people of Nineveh responding to God's word. And you see a group of people understand from the king down to the the, the poorest uh, person in Nineveh begins to understand the reality of God's mercy. Let's look at this. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh responding to this 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issues his proclamation. Everybody needs to fast. No one needs to eat or drink water. And then notice verse 9. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What happens here is the king rightly understands how God's mercy works. The king understands, the people understand that they are a violent people to their enemies. But they also understand that that evil that they do has now metastasized and is now affecting their entire community. The king understands that. We need to repent from our evil and violent ways. The violence that is in his hands that we have. But then what he says is he understands mercy because he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king understands that mercy is never deserved. It's never earned. You don't work for it. It's a gift. God has to not give you what you deserve, which is punishment for your sin. The king understands we're, we're going to repent, which is the right thing to do. We understand we need to turn from our evil ways, the right thing to do. But the king understands the nature of mercy. It's always a gift. It's always unearned. It's always something that, 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 that has to be given by a gracious and merciful God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is a relationship with God by faith plus nothing. And so Jonah understood this. It's funny, the Ninevites seem to understand the mercy of God better than Jonah does. Just wait till next week. Jonah falls, completely gets confused about God's mercy again. The Ninevites seem to understand the nature of God's mercy and realize that God is not obligated to give anyone mercy because none of us deserve mercy because all of us have failed to do what God has told us to do. And everyone deserves, everyone, you, me, all the people, deserved to be punished for our sin and our rebellion and our idolatry against a holy God. That's what we deserve. And therefore, mercy is something we have to receive through a merciful and gracious God who gives us what we don't deserve and doesn't give us what we do deserve. Mercy is an 
obligated. An unobligated gift that God gives to us. The Ninevites understand this. My concern is that we can be like Jonah and we not get this. My concern with the people of God, those of you at home in your living room, or those of you here this morning, my concern is it's easy for us, even the people of God, even people who know they've been given God's grace, to twist that grace, to twist that mercy, and somehow believe that we earn God's favor somehow through our performance. Last Sunday, some of you will think this is very strange. I actually practice my sermons out in the woods uh, during the week. And so I've, uh, I've seen a lot of squirrels come to faith in Christ. Um, and so last Sunday morning, uh, pretty early in the morning, about 6.30 in the morning, I was preaching out, and out in the woods nearby. And on the way back from uh, practicing, a, a deer just dried out, ran out in front of me. I hit the deer. And of course, I thought maybe the deer heard my sermon and was trying to stop me from delivering the sermon. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Anyway, the next morning, Monday, my day off, um, my insurance company is very good. They told me to go to this collision center, which I did, and they took care of me real quick. But they were supposed to be, from the insurance company, a rental car available, that they would come right to the collision center, and they would hand you the car right after the collision center dealt with you, and you'd be in your rental car. Well, that was a nice theory. It didn't happen. Person by person comes into the collision center, and there are no cars available. And eventually there's 22 people trying to get no cars and people are not happy. People are getting frustrated. And now we got all these people indoors, which is not too safe. And so now people are starting to go outside and there's lots of complaining, murmuring, gnashing of teeth. And thankfully I was thinking about the next sermon. I was thinking about mercy. I was thinking about the fact that I deserved to be punished for my sins and I can't deserve mercy. And so I was in a a better frame of mind than most of the rest of the people. There was a woman next to me and I asked her how she was doing and she, she seemed to have a good attitude and she goes, I'm doing fabulous. And she ticked off all these blessings that God had given her. And then she asked me, how are you doing, sir? And I said, better than I deserve. And she goes, why do you say that? I said, because if God gave me what I deserved, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And she goes, amen, brother. And we found out we're both believers. And so we're now we're talking about the mercy and grace of God and other people are beginning to listen to us. And one of the workers from the collision center is not too happy that all of these irate customers, not irate with them, but they're worried they're going to become irate with them because the car rental company can't get its act together. So we're talking about grace. People are listening in. And all of a sudden now we have this opportunity and we're basically, this woman and I are tag team preaching to the angry people waiting for the rental car. And why? Because Joyce, this woman, and I both understood that the fact that we were alive, okay, was an expression of God's mercy. I didn't deserve that. For all the sin I've done, I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be allowed to walk around. But I am. Why? God's mercy. And of course, not only am I just walking around, but I'm in a right relationship with God, not because of anything I've done, but because of the mercy God has given me. He didn't give me what my sins deserve. And so, and he's forgiven me of all my sins. He's given me a life with God. And so Joyce and I kept talking about this over and over again. And one of the workers from the collision center says, man, I didn't know I was going to get a sermon this morning. 
And of course, the other interesting thing about this, about how understanding the mercy and grace of God is since I'm thinking and I'm talking to Joyce about this and people are listening, I'm realizing that in spite of the fact that I'm, I am a little bit frustrated that there's 22, 22 people are waiting for zero cars, but because I know that God's mercy has been given to me freely by a gracious and loving God. And, and, and my sin is not going to be hanging over me. I, I'm not going to face condemnation that I deserve because of his mercy. When you sort of think about that, waiting for an hour and a half for a rental car doesn't seem that big of a deal, even on a day off. And yet how often? Because we lose sight of the mercy of God. We lose sight of the grace of God that's given to us apart from our performance, in spite of our performance. We then turn around, and when God doesn't give us these other things, like a rental car on time, that's a little thing, or God doesn't give you the career advancement that you want, or God doesn't give you uh, kids that are, that, are, that are following Jesus Christ the way you would like, or your health isn't going the way you wanted it to be, when we lose sight of the mercy and grace of God, these other things start to bother us a lot more and we begin to get angry at God because he doesn't give us these things and we've forgotten that God is unobligated to give us anything. But he has his mercy and grace. And of course, his mercy and grace not only help us with understanding who God is, but it helps us deal with a 90-minute wait for a rental car. And at one point, they finally started shuttling us over to the rental car place because the collision center didn't want irate people looking at the collision center name and kind of, you know, thinking about those two things together. So they started shuttling us over to the enterprise, uh, well, I should have said that, the, the rental car company. And Joyce and I uh, eventually got back into line and I could tell that Joyce was getting a little irritated because they didn't have any cars. And I looked over at Joyce and said, Joyce, we've already been preaching for 30 minutes. We cannot lose our cool in this line. It undermines everything we said about the mercy and grace of God. And she goes, you're right. You're right, pastor. Pray for me. Of course, if you can't understand God's mercy for you, okay, how are you ever going to turn around and want to share God's mercy with somebody else? Right? Never forget, Denise and I were talking to a, a, a couple that was getting ready to go overseas serving the Lord. And they were telling us about the last interview they had with the sending organization they were with. And one of the questions that the sending agency asked both the husband and wife, and particularly the wife, said, is there anything in your past that would disqualify you from going overseas and serving the Lord in this way? And the wife had, before she had come to Christ, had lived a, a fairly worldly life and had a number of things she just... Uh, you know, she knew we're wrong and, and she repented of them and she came to Christ. And what she said in that, in that question, they said, is there anything in your, in your past that would disqualify? And she says, everything in my past that would disqualify me from serving the Lord is under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
And do you believe that? Because my fear, if we don't get a tangible hold on God's mercy for ourselves, how are we ever going to offer this mercy to the people around us if it's not that clear to us personally? The message of the book of Jonah here is that no person is beyond God's mercy. No group of people, as bad as the Ninevites were, and they were bad. They were violent. They, they were cruel and evil in every way. They were not beyond God's mercy because no one is beyond God's mercy, even you and even me. Let's look at the last truth about God we need to get a better tangible on, and that is this. God's opposition to all injustice and sin is actually good news, even for you and me. I know some of you probably get a little annoyed at this section. I mean, it's a little cringy to me even, and I believe God's word is true. But the fact that God tells, Nineveh, God tells Jonah just to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that doesn't seem like a balanced message to me. Now, I know you read commentators on this and they say, well, he must have said more things. Well, I don't know. Maybe he did. But it seems to be that this was the message God gave him. This is the only record of what he may have said. So I don't want to try to import some speculation about what he might have said. It seems like an overly negative message. It seems like it's only freighted towards, towards God's justice and God's opposition to sin. But the reality is that in and of itself is not necessarily bad news. It's actually good news rightly understood. God is opposed to all injustice, and thank God he is. What kind of a God would you think if God wasn't that concerned about how people are treated? If God wasn't concerned about murder and violence and war and poverty and racism and all the things that make life difficult to live in in this world? If we had a God who wasn't concerned about justice, if we have a God who wasn't going to deal with injustice, if we have a God who wasn't going to deal with all of the evil in the world, what kind of a God would that be? Not a God I would be that interested in. Now, I realize that for some of your friends, some of your family, when they, when they, when they, 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 they see this message, you know, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and they see pictures of the wrath of God and the anger of God against sin. You, you know, I, listen, I've had people tell me, wow, you believe in a medieval God. I mean, people have told me that in Princeton. Wow, that's pretty medieval. And you can get intimidated by that. And you want to shrink back from that. And you want to say, well, God loves you. And it's a wonderful plan for your life, which is also true. But it is not inconsistent with with sharing with people to acknowledge that God is opposed to all injustice and sin. And that actually is good news. And let me describe a couple of ways that is good news. Many of you are well in the 90s, uh, aware that in the 90s in Rwanda, there was a terrible genocide. 800,000 people minimum were killed in a war between two tribes that were warring in Rwanda. And the West basically didn't do too much. We just kind of let it happen. Well, at the end of this bloodshed, when they finally stopped killing each other, the reality is much of the nation was from one of these two tribes. And now what happens at the end of this time is that if you were in this tribe, you might have a neighbor or a co-worker from the other tribe whose family members were directly involved in harming your family members. All right? 
And so now you've got multiple connections with people where their tribe raped and killed your family members and your tribe did the same thing to them. And so now how do you get along with each other? And one of the ways, particularly for the Christian community, that has allowed some of the violence to dissipate is because Christians believe that there's a God of justice who will bring everyone to justice and will bring justice either in this life or the next life. And since they believed that that's the God they served, they could let God deal with the justice part so they could forgive. And let me tell you, you may have friends you know, who have sort of a God is love kind of approach. You have a God who is a God of love, who is not concerned with injustice. That's a God that doesn't have any resources to deal with that kind of violence and that kind of injustice. If you have a God who, who only is a God of love and is really not going to deal with these issues, then what is that going to do? It's going to put you in a position where you might think, maybe I need to take matters in my own hands and we'll continue the cycle of injustice and murder and on and on it goes. So believing in a God who deals with our sin, in some sense, is good news. Great news. Because a God like that takes our sin seriously. But then when we see that this God also makes provision for our sin, decides to himself die in our place takes the condemnation that we deserved and God's righteous anger and opposition against sin is poured out on Jesus instead of us so that we could be free from condemnation. When you see that you have a God like that, a God of justice, yes, but a God of love who takes the injustice of our injustice and pours that punishment out on Jesus instead of you, it really is good news. And the reality is, unless we see that God is a God of justice, a God who opposes evil all the time, not willy-nilly, not capricious, but has a consistent opposition against all evil, because every single person, according to God, is made in the image of God. And therefore, any evil done to a person is someone who's being treated, mistreated, uh, and is, is a mistreated person who's made in the image of God. And that grieves God and angers God all the time, consistently. A God like that is a God you have to understand. You'll never understand what God did on the cross in Jesus for us. So we need to get a handle on God's opposition to all injustice and sin. It's actually good news. We shouldn't shrink back from that. We shouldn't be intimidated by that message because it's the backdrop to help us understand what Jesus did on the cross. Let me wrap up with one illustration. Tonight at the 6.30 service, uh, you don't have to come back, it's the same sermon, but, um, but if I got up on the top of the roof of the church, okay, at 6.30 tonight, I'm not planning to do this, by the way, and I had a little bullhorn and said, Stonehill, I want to tell you how much I love you. I love you so much. And as your lead transition pastor, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you by throwing myself off the roof of this church. And I went and, you know, did a belly dive off into the parking lot. I don't think you would feel too loved by that. Some of you would go, well, he was only the transitional guy, so (laughs) I guess that's over. 
I don't think you would feel too loved by that, no matter what I said. A lot of you would say, I always knew he was off. On the other hand, if there was a youth meeting happening on the second floor of our building and and there was a work day where people were working in the attic to rearrange stuff in the attic and a quick burning fire broke out up there and I happened to be up there and smoke came very quickly on people and people were, 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 were passing out because of smoke inhalation. And if I put nine or ten people, some of them students, and, and carried them down the stairs out, in, out into the parking lot to safety. And if I saved a dozen people and then later I succumbed to the smoke inhalation and died, you would feel very loved. I'd be a very different funeral than the other one. You might even name the attic after me. I kind of like that idea. Why would you, if I dove off and said, I love you, but you'd say, boy, poor Denise, you know, wow, wow, you know. But if I saved 12 people at the cost of my own life, I'd be a hero. Why? Because I died to save other people. If you've got Jesus hanging on the cross simply saying, oh, this is a wonderful expression of God's love, and you fail to understand that he's experiencing the pouring out of God's righteous anger against our sin, if you don't see the, the God's, his consistent opposition to sin, if you don't see that that's what Jesus is dying for, you minimize the sacrifice that Jesus made. You don't even understand it. The cross almost becomes an unhealthy expression of love rather than a substitutionary death in your place so God could give you what you don't deserve, which is grace and mercy. My encouragement to all of us, no one is beyond God's mercy, not even you. Believe that. Live like that is true. Let that propel you to share the, the gift of mercy to someone else. God's word can transform anyone, even you. Let's act like this is the powerful word. We ought to be in it regularly. And we ought to be trying to pray and ask God to give us opportunities to share that word with others who do not know about this God that we claim is the center of our lives. And finally, don't let God's opposition and injustice, his anger against sin, Uh, you know, cause you to cringe. It's good news, really. We have a God who's going to deal with the injustice you see in this world. He will deal with it so that you can forgive and break the cycle of violence. But also, until you understand his opposition to all sin, you can't fully understand the depth of Christ's love for you on that cross. One more thing I hope you do. Pray for revival. I think about Jonah all the time. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, this would not be great. Wouldn't it be great if you had to leave for church at 7 o'clock in the morning because Route 1 was jammed because everybody was going to church in New Jersey? It's a revival. It's the downside of the revival, right? Where 206 is jammed. Where you got to park at Princeton Shopping Center and walk to church pray that God in his grace, through his word, by his mercy, through our faithful living out of God's grace and mercy 
will make the kind of impact that we see right here in Jonah 3. And you know what the good news is? Jonah is a lousy prophet and a lousy preacher. He runs away at first. God has to give a storm, has to bring a fish. Jonah's going to mess up next week. He's never going to get it quite right. And you know what that means? He can use us. He can use me to bring about supernatural change because he's a supernatural God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that we would become more convinced that God's word can transform anyone, even ourselves, and that we would live tangibly in, 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 in light of that reality, in light of that truth. Lord, I pray that we would understand that no one is beyond God's mercy, even ourselves. That we would live that personally, but we would also take that message of grace and mercy to those who need to hear about that mercy. And lastly, I pray that we would not be intimidated by our culture who often looks at a God who's opposed to all sin. He's, he's, he's got wrath against sin. Help us to see that when we rightly understand that, we rightly understand the great sacrifice of the greater Jonah who died in our place. And when we understand that greater Jonah, it propels us to do all the things that God has called us to do. And I do pray for our town, collection of cities in mid-Jersey. Lord, by your grace, bring revival. You can do it. By your grace, draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.